Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in the first chapter. As we continue our study through this book after a bit of a hiatus last week, I was uh, under the weather last week. And thanks, Pastor Andrew, for filling in so well and uh, at the last minute in some regard. So, um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'd like to read the scripture for us this morning, but before I do, I think it's appropriate if I just catch us up a little bit on this book that we're reading and giving our attention to over the next several Lord's Days. If you were to put a overarching theme on this book, maybe something that you could just fix in your mind as you read to know that this is the big picture. We've crafted that theme with this statement. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us to fear God, to turn an empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's good gifts. It's a very straightforward book about difficulties of life. It helps us come face to face with those and not bypass them or try to inebriate ourselves to not think about the hard things of life, but actually face them head on. And know that in order to turn this often seemingly empty life into a meaningful life, the fear of God is key. So how does the writer of Ecclesiastes tickle this out and make this known? Does he have a structure to his book that we can follow as kind of some ways to hang our thoughts to see where his thoughts are going? There's much discussion about this in recent scholarship, but I think that this really is the best that we have to offer based on the text itself. If you consider the structure of this book, it, it looks something like this. It begins and ends, as you would imagine, with a prologue. Uh, it begins and in an epilogue it ends, and there in the epilogue we get kind of the summation of things. Uh, but next, there are poems that stand at the beginning and end of this book. Last time we were together and I was here, we looked at this poem on human toil. It reminds us from nature about the ongoing nature of things, and it seems like nothing ever advances. It just keeps going. And then the book ends with this poem beginning in chapter 11 and verse 7 about old age and death. And it tells us that death really is the great equalizer. And then in the center of this book, you really have the meat of it, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 12, which is where we'll begin this morning and running all the way through near the end of the sixth chapter, you have the author investigating life under the sun. He's trying different things. He's saying, here's what I did. I tried this. I tried this and looked at this. And that's his investigation. And he's revealing to us the conclusions of those investigations that he himself has pursued. And after that, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 12, you have his conclusions about life. What are his conclusions based upon those investigations? What things can he draw out of that? And we looked at that in some detail as we introduced the book and, and how he does that. And there's this repeated kind of phrase that man cannot find out and man doesn't know his time and 
And these are conclusions. There are some things we just really don't know. And our human wisdom leaves us lacking. And so this is the structure of this book that helps us as we read it and go through it and understand the intent of the human author and certainly the Holy Spirit himself. This morning, I want to focus our attention on the last part of the first chapter. If you'll notice chapter 1, we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 12 through 18. And what is his focus as he introduces to us this investigation of life under the sun? Where does he begin this investigation? And you have this kind of double introduction in verses 12 through 18 of the first chapter. But but notice their primary focus. There's a word that is oft repeated. Look at verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by what? Wisdom. And look at verse 16. You have this word wisdom used again. It's actually used twice in that verse. And at the end of verse 16, you have this word knowledge. In verse 17, you again have this word wisdom, and it's contrasted with the opposite, madness and folly. And in verse 18, this word wisdom occurs again, and the word knowledge. So you can see just by sampling the vocabulary, his focus in these verses is on what? Wisdom. He's going to talk about wisdom. And what about wisdom? Well, there are two phrases that are important recurring in this section. Again, look at verse 13. He says, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. And then look at verse 17. And I applied my heart to know wisdom. So you can see what what he's saying is when it came to wisdom... I did everything I could to acquire it, to apply it, to figure out everything by it. And the wisdom that he's discussing here is a wisdom that is limited to wisdom under heaven, earthly human wisdom. So he's going to tell us about his pursuit of wisdom. And he's going to draw us into some conclusions that he himself has made about human wisdom. And one of the ways that he does that in these conclusions, it's probably apparent in your text, if you'll look at verses 15 and 18. In my Bible, they are offset in a different kind of typesetting because they're demonstrating that they have kind of a poetic uh, lyric to them. And so you have this first pursuit of wisdom and discovery of wisdom in verses 12 and it ends in verse 15 with this proverb as it were that is the conclusion with that first aspect of wisdom he's discussing and then in verse 18 you have the same thing another proverb is given and that proverb is intended to conclude what he has discovered in the second aspect of wisdom So you have kind of this double introduction regarding human wisdom, each of them ending with a proverb that summarizes this conclusion. And so with that in mind, I do want to read this for you, but this morning we're going to look together at the pursuit of human wisdom. 
Let's begin reading in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek out, or to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray together before we examine these words more closely. Lord, would you help us as we look into the words recorded by this ancient man of wisdom. May we take them to heart and learn from them. Know that the pursuit of wisdom, while good, is yet a pursuit that is ultimately futile without you in the picture. So help us to know that all true wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord and in Christ, in whom are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the value of of human wisdom, human learning and understanding and pursuit. Is there value in that? You know, the Bible extols this value of wisdom. Solomon himself in Proverbs chapter 3 in writing to his son said this, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. And he'll go on in that third chapter of Proverbs to extol the praise of human wisdom. That certainly there is benefit in gaining understanding into this world and its ways and acquiring human learning and wisdom. Yea, the very book we're studying, the book of Ecclesiastes, is found in a genre in our Old Testament that is noted to be wisdom literature. Literature intended to impart human wisdom and and understanding. So the Bible does extol the benefits of wisdom. Where do we find wisdom? How do we find wisdom? 
Well, have you ever seen this? It's not far from us. It's located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's an arch in one of the entryways to the campus of Harvard. There's Veritas there at the top. I don't know if you can see the crest, but just above that arch there, there's something written on that, and here's what it says. Enter to grow in wisdom. So if you're to enter Harvard University, you may enter this way and walk under that arch, and what it's telling you is come in here, you'll find wisdom. And they mean human wisdom, human understanding, and learning. Is that true? Well, certainly our places of higher education in our world would say these are places of learning. There are places where certainly you can find about human knowledge and the, the acquiring of that knowledge and learning how to think and what to think. But is that the ultimate thing in life, to gather human education and wisdom and knowledge? If it were, if human knowledge was the key to unlock all the mysteries of life and solve all the problems of life, then our university campuses would be the highest ideal of places, the most peaceful places that existed on the earth. Is that the case? I think we must acknowledge that human wisdom has its limits. It's good to know things, it's good to grow in our knowledge of things, it's good to know in our grow in our understanding of things, but we must come to realize that human wisdom can only take you so far. And so this morning, I want us to examine this last half of the chapter, first chapter of Ecclesiastes, and we're really going to note this, that we should pursue wisdom and enjoy that pursuit but know that only God's wisdom in Christ truly satisfies. Only wisdom that comes from above is what truly satisfies and unlocks the key to life's mysteries. How does the writer take us on this journey to discover really the limitations of human wisdom? Well, there are a couple things he does. Number one, I want you to note that our author here, Solomon himself, gives his credentials for commenting on human wisdom. I mean, if somebody is going to examine human wisdom for its worth and its value, you would want that person to be wise themselves, to have actually tried it themselves. And so the first thing that Solomon does is he says before he draws these conclusions, let me give you some credentials as to why I am the right guy that you should be listening to with regard to the value of human wisdom. What are these credentials? Well, look at verse 12. He begins this way. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. The first thing he begins with to tell us is this. He possesses the necessary authority to draw these conclusions about human wisdom. What is this authority? He says that he has been king over Israel. And by that, I don't think he means I was at one time king, but am no longer. What he's actually saying is, 
I have been king for a long time in Jerusalem, and now he's coming to the end of that reign. Why would this be necessary for him to put up front so that we might listen to what he has to say about wisdom? Well, as king, he had authority to make all the inquiries his heart desired. He would have been completely free and under compulsion to nobody in order to make inquiry and draw conclusion about things in life under his realm, yea, even outside of his realm. The world would have been at his disposal. And what he's saying is, I had all the privilege and responsibility and authority to really make this earnest pursuit of wisdom. I was under no constraint. Therefore, I can give you a proper assessment. He speaks of his authority, but notice verse 16. He also speaks of this. He had the necessary ability. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He says, my wisdom has surpassed everyone that's come before me, and he's acquired this great wisdom. Was this true of Solomon? Well, certainly you know the story, but just to remind us, I want you to take your Bible and go to 1 Kings chapter 3. Who is this man commenting on wisdom? What kind of wisdom did he have? 1 Kings chapter 3. And notice with me, verse 12, Solomon has become king and God has granted him a wish as it were and said, Solomon, ask whatever you will. And Solomon's response was, Lord, give me wisdom to know how to rule this people. And certainly that was granted. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12, God tells Solomon, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Doesn't that sound like what we read in Ecclesiastes? Now look at chapter 4. What was the extent of this wisdom? Look at verse 29. 1 Kings 4, 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than, and he lists several of these men that I can't pronounce. Verse 32, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were over 1,000. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. God had given Solomon a unique wisdom. I think Solomon must have had a photographic memory where he read something or he saw something and it was ingrained on his mind and locked in there and filed away places where he could readily access it. 
God gave Solomon the amazing powers of observation and perception to really see things as they are and perceive them not just on the the basis of the bare facts, but, but to go beyond and observe what they mean. He had given him a unique ability, certainly, to synthesize things, to organize things in his mind, to be able to weigh things, and in a sort of taxonomy, to look at life and, and compartmentalize it in proper categories and understand the arrangement of things. There was no one like Solomon at this point. And if you are looking for somebody to comment on the value of that. This is the guy. If you want someone that can give you a pervasive understanding of the benefits of wisdom, the human race has no one better to offer than Solomon. And that's the point if you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes. When he makes these introductory remarks, IDing himself, I have been king over Israel, everything was at my disposal, and I've had this unique ability to take this wisdom given from God and apply it to the human situation. So what does he conclude about human wisdom? If these are his credentials, then what does he conclude? Well, I noted this phrase for us previously, but I do want to note it again. In verse 13, he says, I applied my heart to certain things. And in verse 17, he says, I applied my heart to certain things. So what he's saying is, I have these credentials. I've taken all my wisdom to put them into practice in order to come to conclusions. What are these conclusions? I'll give them to you in advance and explain them to you from the text. The first thing he teaches us about human wisdom is that it's limited. Human wisdom is limited. He tells us in verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He says, I was an explorer, and I went out exploring, and I used my wisdom to explore everything that I could see under heaven. He was a true renaissance Man, Remember, this is the employment of the best of human wisdom to discover the meaning of life in the world and what this world is all about. This is the best that human beings can know about this world with God not in the picture. He says, I applied my heart to look at everything under heaven. And notice what he says about that particular search. His, his constant pursuit of increasing in wisdom and understanding and gaining more knowledge and more observation and more insight. Look at the middle of verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What's he saying? He's saying, I've taken all my wisdom to observe everything I can under the sun without God in the picture, and here's what I've concluded. Everybody at some point tries to do that. Learn more, grow more, gain more understanding and more knowledge, and he says, guess what? It's an unhappy business. It's never-ending. In fact, I like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase. It says, 
God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. What task? The task of always growing and learning, always growing and understanding, trying to gain more. Maybe if I just learn a little bit more, finally the puzzle pieces will fall into place and I'll figure life out. Wisest man who ever lived says the job of acquiring wisdom and knowledge is a miserable task because it didn't yield the expected results. All it did was keep me busy wanting more. Human wisdom on its own is limited in its ability to answer life's questions. Don't we know this? There was a modernist poet, a man by the name of Ezra Pound. He was a brilliant man, known for his keen sense of observation and looking at the world and writing about it, even through poetry. And yet here is what Ezra Pound said. All my life, I believed I knew something. But then one strange day came when I realized I knew nothing. Yes, I knew nothing. And he concludes this way. And so the words that I have written become void of meaning. This is just a thinking guy. It's a guy who's bright and, and he observes the world and he applies his human wisdom to the situation and he says, I've learned so much, but he gets to the point where he realizes, I've actually learned nothing. And I still can't put the puzzle pieces together. And it's like, my words mean nothing. And my life means nothing. This is the assessment of the wisest man who ever lived. I've given my life to pursuit of wisdom and to know everything that's under heaven. It's an unhappy business. Why? Because in the end, verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. He says, I've applied my mind on everything, and in the end, it's like chasing wind. All this wisdom that I've acquired never got me across the finish line to the goal. What would you think of a guy like that? What would you think if we're here in church, and all of a sudden, a bus pulls up to the door after church, and all these people get out, and they have these nets, and they're running around with these nets, and you ask them, you say, what are you doing? And they say, well, we're catching the wind. We're chasing it with our nets, see? And you look at them, and you say, you're in the wrong building. There's the funny farm down the road. That's where you need to go, right? But, but Solomon says... This is what it's like when I took all this learning and human wisdom and tried to compile it and use that solely to figure out this life. It's like I get my net out and I'm swatting at this wind to try to catch it. But I can't do it. Now, beloved, this is a problem, obviously, as ancient as Solomon, but as current as the 21st century. There's a notion in the world in which we live today, by and large, our Western culture that says, 
Do you know what the key to human flourishing is? We can solve all the world's problems through education. If we just educate people enough, if we just teach them enough so that they know enough and they can apply a certain amount of wisdom, it will solve all the problems. That is why every year the United States spends $130 billion on educating kids K through 12th grade. I'm not saying we shouldn't educate people. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, how many times have you heard this mantra, what we need is more, and let's give them more education. And the reason we have the problems is because we don't have enough education. So let's take them to Harvard and have them enter through the gate and know wisdom because that will solve all the problems, obviously. And the Bible comes back, takes you by the lapel and says, wake up, human wisdom isn't it. But maybe you fall into this frame of mind personally. I mean, honestly, have you ever thought, you know what? If only I would finish my degree, then life would start to work out for me and problems would be solved. I'm not saying you shouldn't, okay? But, but, but are you putting all your eggs in that basket? Well, if only I could get into that particular school, if only I could have those letters after my name, if only... I could acquire more and go to the conference that will finally unlock the key. And we get caught up in this rat race of thinking human learning and wisdom is the answer to human flourishing, and therefore let's get more because it's only going to lead to better things. Well, in the end, we've seen Solomon's conclusion in verse 14. It's like striving after wind. And then he gives this, this proverb in verse 15 that kind of explains in a nutshell what he's been saying. What is the proverb? Look at it. It says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Here's what Solomon is saying. There's a problem that can't be solved with human wisdom. It's like something has been made crooked and it's impossible to straighten it out. Several years ago, I was in a parking lot and I had this old car and somebody actually backed into the front of my car and it crinkled up the hood. But it was an old piece of junk car and it kind of matched the rest of the car at that point, so I wasn't going to go get it fixed. But I had to try to straighten it out so I could get the hood to latch. So I got some boards together and I, you know, put some uh, C-clamp on it and got some leverage on it and kind of bent it up and everything. And I bent it up where it was pretty close. And you could now close the hood and it would drive okay. But guess what? It never completely got all the wrinkles out of that hood. What Solomon is saying is life is like that. Life is crooked, and we know it's crooked because of the fall, because we live in a sin-cursed world. And he says, because it's crooked, human wisdom can't straighten it out. We try, don't we? We ask questions, well, why do good things happen to bad people? 
Or why do bad things happen to good people? Why does all this take place? In our human wisdom, we try to put our mind on it, and we say, I'm going to figure this out. This is a puzzle. And guess what? Solomon just comes back and says, apply all the human wisdom you want. You can't make it straight. It's crooked. And then he says this, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And what he means by that <clears throat> is, is if you have something lacking, obviously it's not there, so I cannot count it. I can't take it into account. And what he's saying is this, all the human wisdom I've tried to acquire, there's still more. You never exhaust that search. There's always more. And so he says, when I try to apply that to the problems of the world, I'm always missing something. And what is missing cannot be taken into account in the equation to help solve it. Human wisdom cannot straighten things out, and it cannot make life add up. It's as one writer said, the problem calls for a solution greater than the sum of all its parts. And when we try simply through education and human wisdom to figure life out, here's our conclusion. Human wisdom is limited. It doesn't answer all the questions of life. The second thing he concludes about human wisdom is this, and that is that human wisdom is a mixed blessing. Again, I want to be clear. Solomon's the wisest man who's ever lived, and he is not saying, don't be wise. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he'll say this. Look down at chapter 2 and look at verse 13. He'll say, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he's going to say, <coughs> Human wisdom has its advantages in the earth. He's not entirely dismissing human wisdom. But I think he was tempted to. And here's why. Look at verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom. And when he did that, he found it limited and lacking. So he said, well, maybe I should apply my heart to know the opposite, which would be what? Madness and folly. And we're going to read some of that, how he said, you know what, so I gave my life to just kind of this free-willing way to live, folly and madness. If, if wisdom doesn't have the answer, then why be wise? Let me just throw myself in the other direction, madness and folly, and see what that does for me. And beloved, it is true that that is often the case today, that we have people who have tried their hardest to figure out this world with their limits of human wisdom, and they've come to such despair that they don't want to think about it anymore. And so they often find themselves tripping up into folly, trying to get their mind off these hard things in the world by either medicating themselves or doing something to distract themselves constantly from the problems in this world that they can't figure out in their own little mind. Solomon says is, I understand that. I tried that. And even that was like chasing the wind. Because I didn't find it in madness and folly either. However, he does say, 
that wisdom is a mixed blessing. And we read this in the proverb. Look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much what? Vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases what? Sorrow. Here's what Solomon is saying. There is value in wisdom according to chapter 2 and verse 13. Wisdom does help you in this world more than folly. However, in the end, wisdom is a mixed blessing because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And the more you know, the clearer the picture you have of the tragedies of a fallen world. Melancholy people are very thoughtful people. People that are often given to fits of depression and despair are simply people that just think deeply about life. And they think hard about life. And they start to realize there's limits to their human wisdom. But because they're thoughtful in thinking about those things, it leads them to this conclusion. Boy, all this knowledge is a mixed blessing. Because the more I know, the more I'm vexed by the way things are. The more knowledge I have of the situation and what's really going around me, on around me, the more sorrow it brings to my heart. And so this is the point that, that Solomon is, is making and the conclusions that he draws. And in the end, he tells us, this is what we must do. We should pursue human wisdom. Don't avoid it. Pursue it. Enjoy that pursuit. But know that only God's wisdom in Christ will satisfy. As is repetitively the theme that we'll see in Ecclesiastes. He brings up these problems and they're very dark and very bleak. And it's my intent that every sermon kind of draws out the bleakness of that. And you're probably feeling that a little bit right now. And you're saying, this is really depressing. That, that I can't figure this world out. And, and even the more I know, the worse it becomes. But that's where we have to go to the full revelation of the scripture and understand what is the intent of that. There is an intended message in that to drive you somewhere, to get you out of your own head and leaning on your own understanding. And what is that? Let's just look at a couple of passages. The, the Lord will say this later in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 9, 22 and 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. See, God knew this. He, knew, he knows it's our tendency as human beings to boast in all we know, all the letters after my name. Look at all this human wisdom that I've acquired. And God says, that's not really something to boast in. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God says, before you ever talk about wisdom, let's talk about what precedes wisdom. It's knowing the source of wisdom. It's knowing me. And you'll never be wise until you first know God. That's why Proverbs tells us, 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. All my human understanding can't put anything together unless I start with this foundation. There's a trust. There's a fear of the Lord. Do you realize that God created you as a human being in his image to be dependent upon him for wisdom? And that was true even before our fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. I don't have time to take you there, but if you read Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God creates man and woman in his image, and then what's the first thing God does with them? He starts talking to them, and he says, okay, Adam and Eve, here's who you are. You are made in my image. You're not like the animals around you or the plants that I've made. You're in a different category, and you're unique because you're made in my image. And here's why I put you in the earth. I want you to image me, and I want you to have dominion over the earth. I want you to take its resources and develop them and form them and fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply and advance. Now, why did God do that? Because Adam and Eve, even in their perfect, unfallen state, didn't have proper wisdom without getting it from God. He had to tell them who they were and why they're here. They had to have a trust, a fear of their creator, an understanding of this in order to put all the pieces together. Beloved, let me put it to you this way. The book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter says this. By faith, we understand that the worlds were created by God. In our boastful human wisdom, even in Christian circles sometimes, we want to say, no, it's by my reason and logic I know the world was created by God. And we say, in my human understanding, I can figure out the puzzle. And the Bible comes back again and takes you by the shirt and says, don't you understand faith comes first? That means a trust in God as he has revealed himself to be. That if you don't posit that trust in what he has said, you'll never figure out the puzzle. Your lifelong ambition and human pursuit of knowledge will only lead to emptiness. It's crooked. You can't straighten it out. You've got to go back to the one that made it straight to begin with. The New Testament speaks of this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, and, and I'll just read through the text with very little comment. Look at verse 20. Paul writes to believers in Corinth, and he says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The reason he's saying this is because in Corinth you had this kind of hotbed of education and human learning, and this is the Greek culture that, that had seen Plato and Socrates, and they were... They were elevated in their understanding and enlightened in their wisdom and they, they enjoyed these intellectual pursuits 
And Paul comes back and he writes to these believers in 1 Corinthians and he says, all right, tell me about these wise people and these debaters of the age. Where are they? Middle of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see what he's saying? All their pursuit of intellectual human knowledge and understanding, hasn't God himself worked the world in the way that it's limited? It's actually foolish? They come up with these harebrained notions? Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What he's saying is this, we're going around, we're preaching a gospel about a crucified Messiah, and the Greeks look at that and they say, that's foolish, and the Jews look at that and they stumble over that, that's not the way it was supposed to happen, and Paul says, don't you understand, that's all of God's wisdom, that's how God solves all the problems, it's in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. That is why, beloved, this wise man that wrote the book of Ecclesiastes would say this in Proverbs chapter 3. So what should you do in this world? You should trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on what? Your own understanding. In all your ways, all the ways about life that you travel, all the ways that are before you, all the decisions to be made, all the, all the things that come your way, acknowledge him. It doesn't mean, yeah, I know, God, you're there, but I'm going this way. No, it means I know him, and I know his ways about this way. And so in all my ways, I'm, I'm knowing him, and he'll do what? He'll make your path straight. Remember those crooked paths? They're crooked. They can't be fixed. Not with human wisdom. That's why God says, so don't rely on your own wisdom. Trust in me. And what I've told you about this world and about what's wrong with it and how I'm fixing it and that in Christ are all these riches of wisdom and knowledge and look at it through that lens and guess what? Things will become simple and it will straighten out your path. You see, human wisdom seeks for explanation. It always wants the answer to the question, why? Give me the explanation. Fill in all the details for me. Godly wisdom always offers promises. Here's what God has said. Here's what he's doing. Trust him. Fear him. We as God's people 
should understand the limits and the mixed blessing of human wisdom. But ultimately, we should know true wisdom is found in Christ. So beloved, let's pursue human wisdom. Let's learn and let's grow and let's enjoy that pursuit. But let's be sure to know that only God's wisdom in Christ will satisfy. That's the wisdom we all must have. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Let's bow together as we pray.